This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. been with us um, the last few Sundays. We're currently on week number four of a series on the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, uh, as you can see from the opening slide, which includes a picture of how I assume that's meant to be, Abraham. I've, well, or, like okay, all right, looking delighted with life circa 2000 BC. Um, and this week we're going to be looking at Genesis 18, Abraham's prayer. So if you have Bibles, if you want to turn to Genesis 18, we'll be reading from verse 16 until the end, but if not, that'll be on the screen. Um, And just to give you a brief recap of what we've covered so far in this series, we've looked at the call of Abraham to father a great nation uh, that will bless many nations, Uh, the subsequent covenant that God makes with Abraham, where Abraham's name is changed from Abraham, which means uh, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of many, and where God calls him righteous. And then last week, Vic uh, focused in on Abraham's wife, Sarah, and their childlessness in the face of that promise, um, which led us up to verse 15 in chapter 18. I was actually getting worried when Vic was reading that second bit of scripture because we'd not discussed to deconflict before and I was about to leap out of my seat and shut her down <laughs> if she entered verse 16. But as this is my only preach in this series, I'm making no promise to those preaching afterwards that I won't wantonly veer into your pastures. Sermon banter. Uh, so let's start. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous But I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. <clears throat> so here Abraham is, he's probably about 100 years old at this point, because in the chapter previously we hear he's 99, and it feels like a, a bit of time has passed since then. And he's living with this enormous and repeated promise from God that he will father a great nation. And he's sat at his tent under a tree, he's just cooked for and hosted God and two of his angels. And during this meal, the Lord has repeated his promise to him, and told him that the next year he will have a son, even in his old age. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed this promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So at this moment, he's probably feeling really elated. Vic talked to us last week about the highs and lows of Abraham's life, Abraham and Sarah's life, where they were faith-filled at points. And this was probably one of those faith-filled moments. His heart was probably beating hard from being in the presence of a Lord, almost as Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. And for most people, I think this encounter with God would probably have been significant enough or probably beyond, it probably would have been overwhelming. And Abraham walks along with the three men to see them on his way as part of his hospitality. But in reality, Abraham's probably ready to go back to his tent and start processing this word he's had. Start prayer journaling or chatting in his three. <laughs> Maybe he wants to start working on that promised child with Sarah, who knows. Uh, and then the Lord starts a new conversation. Now, I often leave it to late to tell Joanna when I've planned to go out for a drink with colleagues, but I imagine that even I would struggle to break the news to her through the medium of looking at her and saying, shall I hide from Joanna what I'm about to do? But in seriousness, what is God doing in these first few verses? Well, he's inviting Abraham into this situation. Abraham might have thought that his encounter with God was coming to an end. He must have thought the whole purpose of me seeing these three men was for me to recognize God and to sit and eat with him and for God to give me this promise. And in fact, God's, Abraham's had a similar promise from Abraham twice before. So for him, it's almost a well-trodden encounter. But God has decided that he's about to involve him in something else significant. But why would he do that? Because the thing that should be relatively clear to us is that God doesn't need to involve Abraham or any of us in his work. He simply doesn't require the permission of men or women to act. And being the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God whose hands made the stars and universe, he really doesn't require our actions. He is, in fact, infinitely more capable than we are, and there's basically nothing that we can bring to the table that he can do without. And yet he does involve Abraham. I know about you that the way I study the Bible, it's in questions like these where I'm saying, why has God done something that he didn't need to, that I really feel God speaks to me about what he wants me to apply from his word? So let's look at that question of why involve Abraham and what can we learn from the way that God involves someone who he doesn't need to? Well, the first reason we find is in the book of the prophet Amos, where in chapter 3, it says that the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. Did you know that? That the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. If you've ever, like I have, looked at the world and asked what is going on right now, consider this verse, that God, in his infinite wisdom, has committed to sharing his strategies with humans. Abraham can very much be considered one of his prophets. He's someone who walks with the Lord, and Proverbs tell us that the wise walk with the wise and become wise. But in this action, God is revealing to us that whether he needs to or not, he wants to involve us. Secondly, in verse 19 of our passage, God says that he has chosen Abraham, chosen or knows Abraham. And this is the same word that he uses in Jeremiah right at the start, where the Lord says to the prophet at the beginning of his ministry, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you or I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. 
God has recognized Abraham and he's set him apart for something specific as he did with Jeremiah. God says that he's chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and remember that Abraham is going to father a great nation, so that's not an insignificant statement. That he can direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So God is saying he wants to engage Abraham so that he can shape him in knowing righteousness. If we've had words in our lives from God about certain places he wants us to go or certain jobs he might want us to have or people he might want us to, to partner with him in coming to the Lord, it's worth considering that God might train us in whatever way he sees fit for us to step into those future visions. And actually, if you've done any management or leading training, if you think about it, this is the way that we start raising leaders. We invite them in decisions that need to be made, even though they don't need to be involved in it, just so they can start learning. And that's what God's doing here with Abraham. And then thirdly, God involves Abraham because what he's about to do impacts Abraham directly. Abraham's got family who are living uh, in Sodom in Genesis 13 when Abraham and his family come out of Egypt. We're told that Abraham and his nephew Lot recognise that they've got too many possessions to live in the same area, so Abraham gives Lot the choice. And Lot chooses the cities of the fertile plain and sets up his tent by Sodom. So if Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, one of Abraham's own blood is going to be destroyed with them. But on a bigger scale... The territory of Sodom and Gomorrah was also directly adjoined to the promised land which, Abraham has pro- uh, which God has promised to Abraham and his family to come. We saw earlier that God reveals his plans to the prophets. Well, it makes sense that he will reveal his plans concerning a certain areas to those who are able to act on it. God is saying that Abraham has responsibility for something on earth and therefore Abraham should know what God intends to do to that land. And I sometimes wonder... When I read in the Bible, the recipients of prophetic words from God, which impacts, you know, the vast future, wondering, how did you carry that? How did Abraham live thinking, I've got this amazing word, but actually it's going to happen largely after I'm dead? Was it distant? Did it feel hard to carry that? But actually, if we look at what God is doing in Abraham and Sarah and the significance of the name changes, God was calling them to live in that future world now. Abraham may not have witnessed whilst he was on earth with his eyes that his descendants would become as numerous as the stars, but God was calling him to act as if that word was his reality right now, if that was his territory there and then. So why is God involving Abraham? Because he's committed to telling his prophets his plans, because he's chosen Abraham and wants to use this opportunity to train him in the ways of justice and righteousness, and because God is about to do something which impacts the land for which uh, Abraham has been given responsibility by God. And we can look at this and say, yeah, that's great for Abraham. I can see why the Lord involved him, even though he didn't need to. But actually, how applicable is this for us? Because I believe that just as God didn't need to involve Abraham in his plans 4,000 years ago, so as he doesn't need to involve us now, he still chooses to. God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, has committed to reveal his plans to his servants, the prophets. Now, in the New Testament, being a prophet means something slightly different to to being in the Old Testament, and I believe that there are people now who have been given the specific mantle of being a prophet. But actually, if you know God, consider that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is alive within you, and he searches the Father's heart. So we can hear from God, and God is committed to revealing his plans. So that's still true for us. God wants to train those he has chosen. If you're following God, consider that it's because he's given you faith. So he's chosen you. Colossians says that we are wholly chosen and dearly loved. I'm always comforted by the fact that God brought me to him a young man rather than on my deathbed because I trust that it means he has a purpose for me. He says clearly in his word that he disciplines and instructs those he loves so that I can believe that we, as chosen men and women of God, have he will have opportunities to train us, work on our hearts and characters and to involve us. 
And then thirdly, we have been given areas of responsibility. I said earlier, some of you will have been given specific words. But actually, in the here and now, we've been given our family, our friends, our workplaces, Cheltenham, the UK, that's what we were praying earlier. And we've been hearing it from guest preachers and from Howard and from what God is saying to us time and again, that we're in a place for such a time as this. So let's take responsibility and ask God what he's doing in our area of responsibility so we can partner with him. Okay, so if we can see why it is that God involves Abraham, can we see how it is that he wants him to respond? Because God has invited Abraham into what he's about to do. He's told him of his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah, knowing full well that Abraham is about to pray for them. But if God is sovereign, and he is, and if God knows everything that's going to happen, and he does, then what difference can it make if we pray and ask God for something? What difference does it make if Abraham is about to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah? As I said, God has clearly, at this point, drawn Abraham in to pray for something, so there must be an answer to that question, so let's look at the text. Because Abraham knows that Sodom and Gomorrah are evil in chapter 13, When Lot goes to live there, it tells us already that they're evil, and this was probably about 20 years before our episode. So 20 years before God has threatened to destroy them, they already have this reputation for great sin. And he probably would have had first-hand experience as well. If his nephew's been living there for two decades, chances are they visit each other, still spoke about it. In chapter 14, we also get that uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are involved in a five-king alliance, which loses a battle with an alliance of four kings, apparently you were rubbish if you weren't a king back then. And Lot is one of the men who's taken prisoners from the defeated side of Sodom. And Abraham rescues him, routing the four kings in the process and winning the battle. And yet then he refuses to take a reward from the king of Sodom because the Lord tells him not to, because he knows that they're evil. So Abraham's lived with the presence of this evil for 20 years. And as someone who's righteous, it must have been really hard for him to have his nephew living amongst them. I wonder if he ever challenged Lot on that. And I think if I were Abraham in this situation, I might have said to God, yeah, I totally get why you need to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But if I'm praying anything, maybe you could let my family get out safely. Because if I was told that my nephew was in a city and it was even just going to be a natural disaster, then I would have said, I'd just be praying for the safety of my nephew. And in fact, isn't this what we do pray a lot of the time when we're invited into situations to pray? I know I do a lot of the time. If I hear about someone who's struggling at work with difficult colleagues, I normally pray for that person that they'd have grace or be able to move job. I focus my prayers on them or I remember on a more significant level when ISIS first pushed into Iraq my main prayers were for the safety resolve and deliverance of the Iraqi Christians and I didn't go much beyond that at that point but instead of that Abraham proceeds in this amazing prayer if we go back to verse 22 when it says the men turned away and went towards Sodom but Abraham remained standing before the Lord then Abraham approached him and said will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous with the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? There's some things about this prayer that are just amazing that I wouldn't pray or wouldn't have prayed. Abraham doesn't focus on his own character in praying to God. He makes reference throughout of how lowly he is. But what he does is focus his prayer on God's character, God who loves righteousness and mercy. He asks God to act in favour of the righteous rather than in response to the wicked. He says to God, far be it from you to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, because he knows how considerably God is for the righteous. 
sometimes when I'm confused by what God is doing in my life or something I read in scripture, I go back to what I absolutely know to be true about God and often from that place I build revelation and it's almost as Abraham is doing this. He's, he's swallowed this massive news and he decides to go straight to what he knows to be true about his Lord, that his Lord loves righteousness to make his petition. <clears throat> then instead of just praying for his family, Abraham prays for all of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't just pray that Lot and his family would escape as I would. And this is significant because this means he's praying for people who are Canaanites, the people who we're told are largely sinful and who inherited, who were living in the promised land at that point, and people who will over time become a thorn in the side of people of Israel. He asks, will you spare the city, the whole city, not just the righteous, not just Lot? So to go back to my example, instead of just praying for the Iraqi Christians, he's praying for the whole of Iraq and Syria. And then actually, instead of praying just for the good of the righteous, you could actually say that Abraham is more praying for the good of the wicked. It's kind of that parable that Jesus gives where he says that those who have a bigger debt to be forgiven will be the happier. Abraham uses the word spare, will you spare the place? And the Hebrew word that he uses there means forgive or to raise up the status of someone. So he's not just asking for the salvation of the righteous, where incidentally the wicked will also get off scot-free as well. He's asking God to forgive the wicked on the basis of the righteous. I wasn't impacted by that when I read that first too deeply because in a kind of like super abstract way I was like, oh yeah, I totally get that, God, forgive the wicked. But actually when I think about how angry I get when someone does me the smallest wrong and yet Abraham was living with these evil people for two decades. The NIV says in this section <clears throat> for its title that Abraham pleads for Sodom but actually what he's doing here is much more profound. He's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah and in that sense he's becoming a priest for Sodom. Now, the law of the Old Testament was yet to be given to the Israelites because they were actually yet to be a people. But a key role of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood was to intercede for the people of Israel before God. The people of God needed priests to intercede for them because in their sinful state they could not withstand the holiness of God. Literally, the priests were standing in the temple in the gap for the sinful Israelites, between God and man, offering sacrifices for their sins so they might be made right before God. Tim Keller makes the point that in verse 22, you might have noticed that it says that Abraham was standing before God, and yet when he starts his prayer in verse 23, it says he approaches him. So were you like, you know, like a meter away, and then suddenly, you know, what's that about? He's already standing before him. But it almost feels as if he's a defense lawyer approaching the bench on behalf of his uh, his defendant, Sodom. I almost like to think of it that just as it says that the angels had to turn to head towards Sodom, that in approaching the Lord, what Abraham was doing was standing literally between God and Sodom at that point. We mentioned earlier that God was essentially encouraging Abraham to be involved in this situation, and God must have known that Abraham would then intercede on their behalf. Notice also how gentle God is in his responses to Abraham's repeated prayer. He's not angry with him, because Abraham is doing exactly what God has called him to. I totally believe at this point that he's calling Abraham to intercede. And so for us, if we believe those first things, if we believe that God will reveal his plans to us, that that God has committed to reveal his plans to his prophets and we can hear from God in the here and now, and if we believe that we're chosen, that we're wholly chosen and dearly loved, and that he wants to train us because it says he disciplines and instructs those he loves, and that he's given us lands to bless because we know him and we're not dead yet, we too must be interceding for it. We must be interceding for our friends, our families, our colleagues, our workplaces, Cheltenham. And this isn't just an Old Testament message. In 1 Peter, we're told that we are now a royal priesthood, a chosen people. We've been called to stand in the gap. 
And I looked up a dictionary definition of intercession because it felt like a good thing to do. And the practice of praying intercession is so well established. But the second definition was the action of saying a prayer on behalf of another. But actually what was so much more powerful was the secular definition of intercession, where it describes it as the action of intervening on behalf of another. And it did that little thing, you know, where it puts the word in a sentence so you can understand it in its context. And it said, he only escaped ruin by intercession of his peers with the king. He only escaped ruin by intercession of his peers with the king. And this blew me away because this is a really beautiful description of what intercession is for us. If we're going to be praying for the land we've been given to bless, wouldn't it be great if when we start reaping the fruit of interceding to the Lord for the lives of the lost, that we can say that our friends, who will then have been saved for all eternity, can be said to have escaped ruin by the intercession of their peers with the one true King Jesus. I felt really challenged when I was reading one guy who said that they pray every week at their church for the nations, and he questioned, uh, or he raised the issue of cynicism, questioning, I sometimes wonder, would it make a difference if we stopped praying for the nations? And I felt challenged, you know, wow, do I even pray for the nations every week? But I want to take his point on cynicism, because I felt really convicted by God to start praying for the UK after the recent referendum. And I was thinking about those who interceded for the nation during World War II, and I was thinking, man, have we lost the notion of praying for a nation? Because we don't operate in the field of nations very often. I know I don't. I tend to operate in the field of myself and my friends. And so we've got this voice inside of us when we try and do it every, every so often, whenever we try and do it. Can your prayer really change the will of a sovereign God? That question that I asked at the start of this section, can my, can my prayer change the actions of a sovereign God? But I want to start challenging that voice in my head and saying, who told me that it can't? Who was it that told you that your prayers can't change the actions of a sovereign God? Because I don't think it came from God. Because if we look at what the Bible says on the matter, it says so much, but here are three brief ones in response to that. In James, we're told, we do not have because we do not ask. We do not have because we do not ask, which suggests if we ask for something of God, we will get it, or it suggests that there are things God doesn't do because we don't ask. Either way, that's our prayers changing the actions of a sovereign God. If we look at situations similar to the one we have in Genesis, in Exodus 32, God reveals to Moses that he's about to destroy the Israelites because they've just built gods out of metal. And then it says that Moses intercedes on their behalf. It says he sought the favour of his God. And then it tells us that God relented from a disaster he'd warned of. And we've got a similar story as well in Amos, where God reveals to Amos a swarm of locusts that he's about to send on Israel to destroy them. And Amos says, Lord, Israel won't survive this. Please forgive us. And he forgives them. So we've got three examples right there of God acting or not acting in response to prayer. A God that in his word calls us to pray all the time, to pray without ceasing. But yet we're also told in scripture that God is not a human, that he should change his mind. So if he is a sovereign God who invites us to pray for situations but does not change his mind, then how, how does that work? I studied the topic of uh, can God change his mind with a friend a few years ago, and one of the ways I found it helpful to think of at the time <coughs> was when a child's been misbehaving. And a parent says, if you keep, keep misbehaving, then I will discipline you, but if you stop essentially you'll get my mercy. And at that point, both of those things are true, and it's almost how the child responds will decide which of those two situations is true. Tim Chester puts it in a bit more of a polished way. He says, the claim that God changes reality in response to prayer need not be incompatible with his sovereignty if God's response to prayer is part of his sovereign will. 
Just as when God sends rain, he also sends clouds as the cause of that rain. So when he ordains events, he can also ordain prayers at the cause of those events. So if the events are the rain, then our prayers are the clouds. He's brought them together. This is not a limit to his sovereignty, but the ultimate expression of it. God is able to achieve his will in response to our prayers. He's saying that God has ordained a world that works on faithful prayers. And this reminds me, at first, of a scripture that says, Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when I first read this a few years ago, I thought, brilliant, I can pray what I want, and I will get it. But we know that's not true, right? Because prayer isn't Christian magic. It's not that God is a genie in the lamp given to answer our demands. And then I recognized that actually the first part of this scripture is delight yourselves in the Lord. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then I thought, well, is that a bit of a rip-off? Are you saying, I will get what I want if it's the same as what God is going to give? But over time, I've come to realize that God alone is the one who truly satisfies. The desires of my heart do not mean the desires of my flesh, and often we can get those two things confused. Even things that you desire which is a good thing, but it might become something that's that's bigger for you. And as for me, as I've fulfilled some of those desires of my flesh, I've realized how unsatisfying they are. They are not the same as the desires of my heart. And I desperately want to be satisfied in life. I really want to have fullness of life. We all do. Non-Christian, everyone wants that. Everyone wants to be satisfied in their life. So how amazing God's grace that he has offered us the root to this. Delight yourselves in the Lord. Delight yourselves in the Lord, guys. And then you'll find yourself praying for things that truly satisfy. Desiring uh, salvation and love and righteousness and mercy. And the Lord will grant you that because those will be the desires of your heart. At this point, I'm going to um, go to the elephant in the room, which you may have noticed since the moment I read the scripture, if you knew the story, if you're really good at spotting elephants, because even if we can see from scripture that prayers can change the actions of a God, and a God that remains sovereign, in our passage, Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah, but in the next chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Now, what Abraham prays for is answered. God can't find ten righteous people in the city, so they're destroyed. And actually, what Abraham doesn't pray for, what I would have prayed for, is also answered, because Lot manages to escape, and there are no unright, there are no righteous people in the city when it's destroyed. But I think there is a thing in our society that we stand the risk of, where we consider ourselves almost morally superior to God if we're offended by this. It's almost this thing of like, we feel like we might know better than God, we know what is just more than God does, that thing of, oh, surely God didn't mean he was going to destroy Israel because that's really mean, or, you know, surely God doesn't mean that it's a sin to sleep with someone before marriage because that's really illiberal, or surely my family member isn't going to get sent to hell because that doesn't seem just to me. And I don't have time really to address this full on, but I would suggest something that I heard once in teaching, which is where we sometimes find something in the scripture that that brings offence with us in God. It's worth going to the Lord and saying what it is what is it about my heart that is making me find this difficult? Because God is good in all things. It feels that in our culture we've begun to lose that, which we see in Ezra, an Israelite who was allowed to return from exile in Babylon to support the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem, and who got before the Lord on his knees and cried out, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved. In my illustration of disciplining a child... 
I limited God somewhat insofar as I said either or. I said justice or mercy. But actually, there's more to it in this example. It's, it's not just the case that God is offering Sodom and Gomorrah either his justice in destruction, which would be good because God is good, or his mercy if Abraham happens to pray for that, which would be good because God is good. Suffice to say, Sodom and Gomorrah were steeped in evil deeds. We're told in chapter 19 that when the angels go down to the town, that all of the men of the city, young and old, crowded outside Lot's house and ordered, them, ordered him to give them the angels so that they could rape them. The prophet Ezekiel, using Sodom and Gomorrah as the high bar of sin 1,500-odd years later, describes them as arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before God. Doesn't sound unfamiliar. And yet looking at the fact that God had saved the evil cities 20 years earlier through Abraham and seeing God's actions in Jeremiah 5 where he says to Jeremiah, find me one righteous person in the city of Jerusalem and I'll save it. I think we can surmise that God really would have saved Sodom for the sake of 10. But God does actually show justice and mercy in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. It's worth recognising that right at the start of this passage, God said that there was an outcry against the cities, and the Hebrew word there is often used to describe the cry of those who are oppressed. God came down to see if that was true, and when he saw that it was true, and he saw that there wasn't a single righteous person in the city, he actually did the merciful thing and released those people from oppression. They had given themselves over completely to evil, and in that sense they had become a cancer on the land. And if you think about how merciful it would be to a cancerous sufferer to have that cancer cut out, in the same way, he's been merciful to the land by cutting out that city. But actually, going back to this moral superiority thing, if we are shocked by the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, might I suggest that that's not a bad thing, that there's stuff we can learn in that? What are our responses to the Sodoms and Gomorrahs of today? Do we believe that there are Sodoms and Gomorrahs? Do we believe that there are places that are arrogant and overfed and haughty? maybe ones that we feel we might actually have some responsibility for in the same way that Abraham had responsibility. I think that this passage is essentially an encouragement to pray. And seriously, I wish that the end message here was you know, more exciting or revelatory or more new because it's so much easier to say we need to pray than it is to do it, right? But when I looked at how God involved Abraham, even though he had no need to, in order that Abraham might intercede for people covered by his responsibility. And I saw in the Bible that prayers can change the actions of a sovereign God. I saw a picture of an alarm bell ringing in my head and found myself asking, why am I not doing this? Because we know what Abraham's response is to this. It's given away in the title slide. He prays. Guys, what I've been building towards today is to ask whether we think we are praying enough and whether we think our vision for what we're praying for is big enough. And bear with me, because I considered for a long time whether to ask it that directly, because I don't want to offend people, and I don't want to bring guilt, and for some people that won't be the question. But I feel like I can ask it, because for me, that's a question that I'm asking myself regularly. Wayne Grudem says, if we are really convinced that prayers change the way God acts, and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as scripture repeatedly teaches us that he does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray too little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. We're hearing time and again from preachers, often from guest preachers, who are speaking words of God into the challenges of our area of responsibility in Cheltenham, that Cheltenham is comfortable, and it makes us want to be comfortable. 
and that most living people living here all seem to have it made, but they don't have a need for God. And as I'm conscious for having heard this message a number of times, I'm adding my voice to it, but I think it's this thing that Paul says, if it's worth repeating something so that we might apply it. And if we don't apply the things that we feel God is telling us to do and instructing us in, then we become like the church that Paul visited in Athens, who spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You may have seen the last couple of weeks the video from our friends at Hope Church, Tony Pandy and the Rhonda Valley. They're, they're setting another church plant um, in a really deprived area of Wales, in case you haven't. They went, they went and planted it, and they, their vision is for a, uh, for a church in every one of the 30-odd communities in, in that deprived area. And Andy and I were chatting after seeing the video for the first time, and he made the point that they will get people to come and join them for their vision, because their vision is so big. I was taught at a previous church that if the vision is big enough, then you can get away with a really big challenge because people know what they're paying the cost for. And at the start of this series, Howard challenged us that we should ask the Lord for what our vision is. So can I challenge us to become a church who prays? Can we become a church who, in spite of living in a town which encourages people to be independent, financially autonomous, worldly wise, and with no need of God, pours ourselves out before God for the people around us? A church that stands in the gap for Lot, those who we know, but also for the Canaanites, those who we don't know. We talked to RG1C on Wednesday about what it means to pay the cost for spreading the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. Well, well, what might it mean to pay the cost to be prayers? Can we be a church which fills its prayer meetings? Not because it's ticking a box or because the leaders have made it worth our while going, but because we're so desperate before the Lord. Can we be a church that doesn't need to wait for the leaders to arrange prayer meetings, but meet with people in our threes and our G1Cs and just other people in the church and pray, pray on our own? And here's a secret I have about attending uh, church prayer meetings because a lot of the time I don't feel like praying last thing on a Sunday or on a Wednesday evening or first thing on a Friday morning. But I've started to realise in my life that the more I pray, the more I want to pray. Not because my prayer makes me more deserved of the presence of God. Actually, there's nothing I can do to deserve that. But it's already been paid for me. And so by praying, I'm operating on what has already been bought for me. And time after time when I've discussed this with people or got on my knees before the Lord, I've recognised how much we need to be praying for these things that we talk about. We need to pray that we grow as a church. Pray that our friends will meet God. Pray that he will give us faith that Cheltenham can be changed. When I was thinking about what to say here, I was thinking, God, please don't let me say something that makes me a hypocrite. But actually it's more of a case that I don't want to act in a way that makes me a hypocrite. And trust me when I say that I'm not there yet. I'm not Abraham, who when I see something big immediately turns around and intercedes for it. But I want to be like that, and I read this passage, and I believe that actually I can be like that, because God is the same. And if you hear this challenge and you want to receive it, can I ask the question, do we want to be individuals who are known for prayer? Can I be someone who goes to prayer meetings, not just because it's ticking a box, and not because I find myself bursting with prayers, as I said, I'm not there yet, but because I want to be someone who's bursting with prayer, and actually I'm willing to pay the cost to get to that point? Can you be someone who makes use of the free from fear freedom that Jesus has earned for you to approach the throne of God and stand in the gap for your family, your friends, your colleagues, Cheltenham, UK, the world? Final point, and if the bands could maybe come back up now. For those people who are really professional elephant spotters, there is one more elephant in the room for this scripture. 
Did you notice that Abraham starts by praying for 50 righteous men? I've read it's possible that a small Canaanite town might have been able to put forward 100 fighting men, so maybe, maybe Abraham chose 50% of that and then worked his way down with humility and trembling before God to ask God to save, to forgive a city made up of foreigners who were worshipping foreign gods for the sake of 10 righteous people. So why didn't he ask God if he would forgive them for the sake of one? Maybe Abraham lost his nerve. Maybe he thought there were ten righteous people in that city, or maybe he recognised that there were none. Or maybe God just stopped the conversation at that point. But, and as we head towards communion, you can probably see where we're going with this, I want us to remember right now that actually God has proved that he will save the wicked majority for one righteous person, and he has done so in his son Jesus. We in this story are the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were arrogant overfed and unconcerned who were haughty and did detestable things before God but whereas Abraham's prayer could not save them because God could not even find one righteous person let alone ten for us whilst we were still in our sin Jesus the sinless and perfect son of God stood in the gap as the one righteous man and gave his own body and blood on the cross so that we would be forgiven and become righteous before God God is calling us to stand in the gap for others, but for us, Jesus, the great high priest, is interceding to the Father day and night. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.